and welcome to the Careers by Design podcast. I'm Sharon Belden Castingway, Director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today I'm speaking with Rob King, class of 1984. Rob, can you start out by telling me a bit about your current professional role? Sure, Sharon. So I work at uh, ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut, right near Middletown, uh, where I oversee Sports Center, our flagship news and information show and brand, and all of our news gathering and reporting. So pretty much everything you see on air with a big SC in the background or any report you might see from a game or from a court room or what have you, where we're telling uh, stories that are breaking off the news or we're introducing um, long-form uh, enterprise narratives that tell you stories about people you didn't know. Uh, those are my areas of oversight. So let's go back in time a little bit. Tell me about young Rob King. Were there early signs that you were going to go into journalism? There were pretty much no signs. Look, all I ever wanted to be was an editorial cartoonist. Uh, and I, the reason I got into cartooning in the first place was when I was very small, uh, my mother, who was an English teacher, who was now caring for three kids under the age of six, um, wasn't, in, wasn't working in a school, got bored, and decided to turn me into a science experiment. So I started reading when I was about three. And I was reading at such a rate that um, my parents could only really afford either a library card or to buy comic books. So I started out just devouring comic books and learning to draw from observation and learning about narrative structure, even though I didn't think of it that way. Uh, and as I appear, got closer to high school, I decided that, you know, because uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and my parents were uh, involved in, in local business, which is many times in D.C. politics. Uh, my dad's a Democrat. My mom's a Republican, which in D.C. is an interracial marriage. Um, <laughs> but uh, because we had that sort of confluence of interests, I decided I wanted to be an editorial cartoonist. So uh, while I played sports all through school, um, all through high school, and uh, even at Wesleyan, there was no sign that I was ever going to be involved in sports television or sports journalism whatsoever. And what made you decide to attend a liberal arts college? Well, there were a couple of things. I think, um, again, as somebody who, who wanted to be a cartoonist, uh, I was pretty sure that there weren't a lot of cartooning factories. You know, <laughs> right. Any, you know, there weren't any uh, shops where you went and, and learned the trade, per se. Um, and I and I did think that there were places, you know, whether it was the Ivies or liberal arts schools, that would be, be a little more tolerant about my trying to figure out my journey. Um, uh, the other factor was that Wesleyan just appeared on my radar because my uncle was a graduate in 1961, and um, you know it was really kind of a courtesy visit. You know, I went all the way up to New uh, to Hanover, New Hampshire, to Dartmouth, and then we kind of did the. Ivy and liberal arts tour on the way back down to D.C., and um, by the time I got to Wesleyan, uh, I, I saw a lot of things that I really wanted in, uh, you know, in my college experience. So, uh, you know, those those things kind of worked out. Plus, look, I'm one of those West grads who revels in the notion that we went to a place that is delightfully weird and delightfully unique and a, a home of innovative thinking. Um, and you just walked around the campus and you got that feel, you know. So I, I think it was a place that I just had to, had to go. And tell me a bit about your experience at Wesleyan and how you feel that Wesleyan changed you. 
Well, one thing I, I did not do while I was at Wesleyan was a ton of cartoons. You know, I left Wesleyan without a portfolio. I did two cartoons for the Argus over the, over the course of my four years of being there. Uh, I was an English major because I uh, thought I'd be a government major and then do some art, take some art courses. Uh, but because I was playing basketball and because I was doing a few other things, uh, it was too hard to get into some of the night drawing courses that would have made an art major a possibility. Uh, and I found that government was um, not my favorite thing. But I did find that uh, the arts and English and being around people like George Krieger or Annie Dillard uh, really excited me. So um, I found my way to, uh, to uh, the kind of studies that would make me really feel like I was getting a you know, Wesleyan experience. Um, the thing that changed me the most were the people that I met there, um, whether it was the instructors or whether it was just my friends. Um, you know, the, uh, the days were full. I just loved, from the time I was a freshman sitting in the hall of Foss 8, just talking a bunch of nonsense and playing cards, to, you know, when I was a senior living at 128 Pearl Street with my really close friends, you know, dreading the next phase of life. <laughs> uh, the people that I spent time with really did help me kind of understand who I was, what I liked, um, what I disliked, what I, what I could potentially be good at. Uh, and, you know, I've said this many times, Wesleyan was a great place for finding that spot on a hill or in a library where you're just going to sit there and have a conversation with somebody that changes your worldview at any point. Um, I left Wesleyan with a with an open mind and with a hungry mind and uh, with confidence that, uh, you know, however unusual my journey might be, it was okay because there were so many people that I had encountered while I was there who were going to be taking similar journeys. Even if it, even if they were interviewing with Wall Street firms, you know, to have a job right out of school, that wasn't necessarily going to be their story um, if that's not what they wanted. Um, Wesleyan really kind of gave birth to this notion that all things were possible. And I hang on to that to this day. How did you go about making the decision of what to do after graduation? Uh, desperation. So look, you know, <laughs> anybody listening to this podcast should know that I did the thing that you might dread and you can still survive. I moved back in home with my parents. Like I, I graduated with an English degree, no portfolio, uh, but tolerant parents and moved back in. And that first summer, uh, spent a long series of hours trying to develop a portfolio of editorial cartoons that could somehow represent my uh, my future desires in, a, in an interview. Uh, but listen, I mean, you know, that was a world where it was much harder to to find out uh, even how to get a job, especially as the oldest in the family. Um, you know, how to even go about the process. Uh, you know, I tell I tell students all the time now that their world is infinitely easier uh, because of the connection we all enjoy through digital and social platforms. Um, you know, at that time I didn't know what I know now, which is you know there is no job interview that's really about you. Every job interview is about solving the problem of the person who's posted the job, and the degree to which you are a viable candidate to get that job is the degree to which you do the kind of research into their problem where you understand how to present yourself. Um, you know, when I wanted to be an editorial cartoonist in 1984, there were really only 
a few small paths to getting in front of editors who might hire you. And one of those was an annual publication. Imagine this. Like you had to wait for this publication to come out once a year called the Editor and Publisher Yearbook that listed the names of every editor and managing editor and publisher and then various department heads of newspapers. Uh, so I literally put together a portfolio of cartoons and sent blind submissions to about 70 newspapers that were you know, anywhere from about 200,000 circulation or smaller, thinking that I might have a chance to catch somebody's eye, without ever having re read any of those newspapers, hmm. without having any understanding of what the local politics were for any of the markets to which I applied, right. without even knowing whether the people to whom I applied were still employed at the newspapers. You know, Now you flash forward to today, you can go online, you can find out in real time you know, what a newspaper's uh, topics are, you know, what it hopes to be covering in the future, what its business issues may be, what its parent company might be thinking about, you know, what it's doing in the social and digital and mobile space, uh, all the things that you need to know to rep actually, you know, present yourself as someone that a, a hiring manager might be interested in speaking with. But in those days, you were just operating blind. So I sent off 70 submissions that were as good as I could possibly produce at that point in my life, and I got, you know, about 70 rejections. And I ended up uh, lucking into a job sorting mail at the Washington Post. So I worked night shifts, and, um, you know, while I was on my way into town to start working at the Washington Post to take care of the needs of people in the building, uh, a lot of 20-somethings and 30-somethings were heading in the opposite direction down Connecticut Avenue to go to restaurants and bars and movie theaters and have lives, you know. Um, but it was, and it was a, it was a, an important experience. It was a humbling experience. Um, I, I figured out within the year that I wanted to go back to grad school and study journalism and really build a portfolio. And there were a host of things that, that I did uh, as a result of knowing that living at home wasn't what I wanted to do. But by the same token, I, I had the incredible good fortune of being in an amazing work environment where I had access to people like. Bob Woodward or their famed editorial cartoonist Herb Block, who I could talk with and learn from. Um, and I'm telling you, the talking and learning and the willingness to go up to somebody and say, I'd, I'd like to know more about what you do, all that was born at Wesleyan. You know, th those are skills you learn if you take full advantage of being in, in Middletown where, you know, you literally can get on somebody's calendar and you know, talk to them for half an hour and have your mind opened up and I took full advantage of that while I was while I was there in my first year. And by the time I got to grad school, I had a sense of purpose. Um, I was going to be an editorial cartoonist. I didn't exactly know how, but you know I, that that was my plan. How did you go about choosing your graduate program? Uh, Penn State uh, was starting a fledgling program. They 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 did not have a communications or journalism program, so they were starting one that was uh, a one year program and. Again, that that sort of came up through connections that my my mom had uh, with Penn State. But my parents, you know, a lot of Wesleyan kids will have this experience. My parents are finding every opportunity they could to have me sit down with at dinner with lawyers or doctors or business people. You know, right. when I said I was going to be a cartoonist, they reacted with all forms of natural panic. <laughs> um, and so, you know, but I would also say that you know, every connection, whether it comes to your family or it comes from friends or what have you is meaningful. And so uh, as a result of somebody that my mother had worked with um, uh, coming up and just saying, hey, listen, you know, we've we got this going on at Penn State, I learned that it was something that I could apply to. 
by the time I applied, I had actually sold cartoons to the Washington Post, and I actually had started doing work, you know, on my own that was starting to look professional. Um, you know, while I was at the Post, I actually studied the editorial cartoons that came in through the mail for consideration for their week weekend uh, review of, of cartoons. Okay. So, so I studied styles, and you know, I I did the Wesleyan thing where you just sort of, you know, you just grind away at the thing that moves you to your point of greatest passion, and and I improved. So uh, when I sent my portfolio to Penn State with a with a long note, you know, a very Wesleyan kind of letter explaining that uh, my future was going to be as an editorial cartoonist, that I saw this opportunity to study journalism at a graduate level as uh, as a means of of you know taking uh, a unique step towards towards uh, that unique career path. Not only did I get in, I got a university fellowship. So the university actually paid for me to go to graduate school, which was pretty sweet. And tell me about that first role that you had coming out of your graduate program. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I took the first job uh, that that would let me be an editorial cartoonist. And I would always, I would say to anybody listening to this podcast, pay attention to the details. So uh, what happened was at Penn State was that Gannett recruiters came um, to campus, and I just showed up saying that I was interested in cartooning and graphic arts and you know what what have you. Um, so I got a call from a, an editor named Chuck Carpenter in um, Danville, Illinois, and he said that he had an opening for an editorial cartoonist, and I was like, yes, and I didn't pay attention to the rest. Uh, uh, but the rest happened to be also a graphic artist, also a general assignment reporter. Um, so when I got out to Danville, Illinois, uh, you know, it was not it was not Penn State, it was not Washington D.C., it was Danville, Illinois. You know, it was a population of thirty nine thousand, uh, a readership of twenty seven thousand. Uh, you know, very industrial town in the right next door to the middle of nowhere, um, and with some very earnest, hardworking, relatively young newspaper folks. Um, you know, trying to start their craft. Uh, the place was so um, traditional uh, that uh, that Gannett at one point had purchased the first Macintosh computers for all 80-some of its properties. And this Danville had one of those Macs in an office kind of in the back. And they they walked me back to where I would be working, and there was a drawing table and a Macintosh, and they were like, this is your workspace. Um, now, three weeks prior to my visiting, there had been a fire. And everybody at the newsroom grabbed everything they could to race out to safety, everything that they cared about, right? When I walked into my office, the first thing I had to do with that Macintosh was blow ashes off of it because <laughs> nobody had touched the computer. It hadn't even been really turned on since it arrived in Danville. So I literally had to pull out a book and learn how to use the computer in order to do my job. Um, and I was in Danville for one year, two weeks, and three days. Not that I was counting. Um, I... Uh, you know, I was making like no money. Like I was, I would have these dreams that it was Thanksgiving at my grandmother's house and there'd be turkey and there'd be stuffing and gravy and there'd be all this food. And then I'd wake up and in my apartment, all there'd be was baked beans and macaroni and cheese. And I would be so sad. I'd be so sad. I had, I had a library card. I had a Sears charge card. I had a video rental card. Now, young people, you should just go on Google and look up what a video rental card is. Um, and uh, what else did I have? I had like those, I, I had a, oh, I had a YMCA membership, right? So I could go play basketball or I'd go to the library. That's my dad's advice. You know, you know, get a library card so you can read some books. Um, 
I had a cable TV subscription, and you know, I had a job that worked. It was an afternoon newspaper, so I had a job where I'd be at the office by 6 a.m. Um, I'd have to write a story, report and write a story, and um, potentially build a map or small chart by our noon deadline. At noon, I would walk the two blocks back to my apartment, and I'd have lunch and watch all my children. And then I would, which is a soap opera for you young kids, and then I would walk back to the office and I would do my editorial cartoon for the next day's newspaper, and I'd be done by 3 o'clock. And at 3 o'clock, I'd either go to the library or I'd go to the YMCA. And that was my life for a year, two weeks, and three days. But it was total immersion again into journalism, total immersion into actually being a published cartoonist. Uh, I met the best friend I have in life, a guy named Alvin Reed, um, who, like many people who, you know, come out of come out of uh, college uh, with ideas and dreams and hopes uh, and a good sense of humor had the right sense of perspective, right? So we laughed. We laughed and laughed and laughed. We had so much fun. Um, and I survived it. Uh, and, again, it was one of those things where if I hadn't gone to Wesleyan and if I hadn't met all sorts of different people and if I hadn't just had that experience, I, would, I don't think I would have made it through, you know, Danville. I just wouldn't have. Now, you had a career in print journalism before you moved to ESPN. And you were in print journalism during a very interesting time in the field's evolution. So could you speak a little bit about how you saw that field evolve and how your career was evolving with it? Well, you know, one of the one of the great virtues of being a visual journalist, somebody in cartooning and graphic arts, is that in that period from 19... 87 really till about 2003 uh, newspapers as an industry awoke to the real need to connect with people on and on uh, emotional and visceral levels you know we we were really good at producing beautifully written stories um, but you know cable television was becoming a much more vibrant experience magazines were understanding that they were going through a bit of a change, um, you know, the, the the video revolution, the music revolution was taking place so that experiences were much more personal, and so you really had to, you had to really drive connection to your audience if you were a newspaper. So there was a lot of activity, a lot of very smart activity about the importance of visuals, headlines, photographs, graphics, explaining journalism in a way that could be easily shared and communicated. Uh, the actual presentation of newspapers so that even if you produced longer stories, you didn't force people to kind of search for how they continued from the front page inside. There was much more planning, a much more strategy around the delivery of news, which really kind of um, was out ahead of what happened eventually with the online and digital explosion. So, you know, as a visual journalist, I was called into more central conversations. I went from being a graphic artist to a graphic editor to then being asked to consider to, how to redesign newspapers. Uh, I went from Danville to a newspaper in um, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, um, to a newspaper in Louisville where my jobs as a visual journalist got actually bigger and more central to you know what the newspapers were trying to achieve. I will say that the move from Danville to Cherry Hill was um, largely motivated by uh, a girlfriend uh, who, as it happened, had another boyfriend. So those of you listening who are young and making decisions, don't do that. Don't do that <laughs> right? um, 
but uh you know so yeah so you know i went from from uh you know danville illinois where i was a cartoonist to cherry hill new jersey where you know in the course of a few weeks we went from being an evening newspaper that was really kind of essentially a black and white newspaper to a four-color newspaper coming off a brand new printing press that was much more vibrant and telling stories that were had more ambition both from a content perspective and from a presentation perspective to going to uh, Louisville, Kentucky, where ultimately I had a job as presentation editor where I was overseeing both not only the design of the newspaper but the photo department. Um, so, you know, uh, and I was just learning from people who were very, very skilled in visual communication. Uh, that, that time in visual communication also, you know, drove hand-in-hand communication with people who were assigning stories and writing stories and trying to make sure that as we were writing them, we were writing for uh, all readers. Um, you know, technology went from, you know, having Macs in a, in a corner of a building with ashes on them to having Macintosh computers be the central uh, tools to designing and publishing uh, newspapers. So uh, in Cherry Hill and in Louisville, I was responsible for bringing in a lot of, of uh Apple and other technology to the publishing of newspapers. So you know there was just a lot of learning, and it was all kind of it was all kind of happening at the same time. Um, and we were all in our in the newsroom uh, learning and and growing at the same time. And we were all inspired by you know the beautiful work that was being done by places like the New York Times and the Hartford Current and the Dallas Morning News and the Los Angeles Times and the Detroit News. I mean there were these these newspapers that were really redefining what the presentation of news looked like. And so uh, it was a very exciting time to be in that business. Um, and then, you know, by the time I got to uh, 2000, uh, well, actually, by the time I got to 1997, that's right, um, you know, uh, my wife and I, who, who had enjoyed, you know, being um, you know, double income, no kids, living in, um, Louisville, Kentucky, with amazing people, amazing culture. Sort of had to look back at the East Coast, where uh, we had a death in the family that really drove us to think about how we could get back closer to family. And in 1997, I took a job at the Philadelphia Inquirer, where I started off in visual journalism and doing redesigning our sports section and working with our photo department to making a decision in 1998 about uh, actually moving full time into sports. And um, I did that in large part because I started to have dreams and aspirations, not just of, you know, leading a team of visual journalists, but actually leading a newsroom. And mm-hmm. uh, I figured that if I was going to do that, uh, you know, I was going to have to have run some, some some parts of the operation that involved journalists, editors, deadline, great writing, um, great strategic planning of content. And an, op- an opportunity opened up with the Philadelphia Inquirer Sports Department, and I dove right in. So, you know, I was there for uh, in that sports department um, for about three or four years. I, I worked with a guy named Stephen A. Smith, who now works here at ESPN uh, on a number of shows, including mine. Um, I worked with great journalists there. Um, you know, uh, we sports journalists tend to look at things like election night with disdain because we have the equivalent of election night every night. Um, you know, we've got to get the, the, the numbers right. Um, we can't call Victor early, uh, and we don't get to celebrate with pizza when we make deadline. Um, yet, uh, and so sports really kind of 
taught me a lot about journalism so that between 1998 and 2000, I had the opportunity to do other things at the Inquirer, including move to working with, uh, with page one of the entire newspaper as we started to approach things like covering the 2000 Republican National Convention. Suffice to say, you know, being at the Inquirer with the amazing journalists there uh, was an opportunity to, to kind of pull everything that I'd, I'd learned before in newsrooms and everything that I'd learned in, just in terms of dealing with people starting at Wesleyan, um, you know, to, to my work every day. Um, and uh, the Inquirer newsroom was just a, really just an incredible place. Uh, the, the, the stories we covered in Philadelphia and nationally were unbelievable. Um, you know, we were among those newspapers that felt our our calling was even more profound in the days after September the 11th, 2001. Um, and uh, we also were, like other news entities, fully engaged in the balance between trying to tell global and national stories and also being relevant at the local level. And, you know, one of the things I always take away from sports is that that's one sub subject matter that tends to be relevant globally, nationally, and locally. So the things I learned in sports helped me be a, a, a useful part of the team as we were trying to reimagine that newspaper writ large. Um, so, yeah, that whole, that whole period, you know, ultimately I left, I left newspapers in 2004, but that whole period was a really vibrant one in terms of learning, a really vibrant one in terms of learning what it took to be relevant to our audience, uh, and, you know, against that backdrop, 1995, 96, 97, when AOL started taking, you know, a lot of people's time and then subsequently other dynamic digital entities, when the internet became less a matter of some article you might read about and part of your life, like there was a huge, huge amount of change to process. And it was a lot of fun to be part of that. It seems, it would seem to the observer that the decision to go to ESPN would be both an enormous career move, but also a real identity change in terms of the type of media. So could you comment a bit on what that decision-making process was like to make that move? Well, you know, at its base level, I had a great time in the Philadelphia Inquirer sports section. It was the first time, you know, just working with reporters, going to events, uh, you know, covering athletes. Uh, it just lined up with, you know, my, my natural bent towards being an athlete and a sports fan, and everything I'd learned in in, uh, in journalism. Uh, but I have to say, the the primary catalyst um, for for going to ESPN was 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 more personal. Um, and I I say this every chance I get to, particularly to you know rising juniors and seniors in college. But the truth of the, of all of this is just. It's going to work out. You just don't know how yet. And and I, I'll say it again. It's going to work out. You just don't know how yet. So by 2004, what I was doing every day for a living had nothing to do with my dreams of being an editor or cartoonist. While I was at Louisville, I had a comic strip, a daily and Sunday comic strip that ran for six years. And by the time I left the Inquirer, I wasn't doing cartooning at all. Um, what I was thinking about then was that initial dream of actually becoming the editor of a newspaper. Uh, and in 2000, ESPN came calling with uh, a job offer uh, right around the time I decided to go to page one and, and work on um, the Republican National Convention. Uh, but ESPN came calling, and, and I went up and I was intrigued just by 
what I saw on the campus and uh, what I observed in terms of ESPN's true understanding of its audience. Um, because people walking the halls are sports fans. You know, the people, the people walking around this campus are, are truly the folks that would understand the best what sports fans are interested in. So I was fascinated by that. But I stayed at the Enquirer uh, for, for another four years. I said no a couple of more times to ESPN as, as different job offers came up. But in 2004, I was pretty close to realizing the dream of being the editor of my own newspaper. But I just wasn't sure where that would be. And I really didn't feel, because of that, I didn't really feel like I had control of, of, of my career. Um, and yet ESPN was still kind of in the offing. And against that backdrop, my wife and I welcomed our first child. So my son Eli is born, and all of a sudden I realized the wisdom that my parents had been sending along to my brother and sister and me our entire lives, which is that, you know, essentially they, they, made, they had many fascinating career changes through the course of their lives. And they essentially said, you can make big decisions about your life and expect something good to happen. So, you know, um, again, I had to believe it was going to work out. I just didn't know how yet. And so I, I, what I saw in ESPN was an opportunity to do even more learning because I felt, you know, after almost 20 years of newspapers, I knew that business, but I would have to learn TV and have to learn a completely different experience. And, you know, in my early 40s, that would be a gift. Uh, I had to, you know, uh, get on a slightly bigger stage because ESPN is one of the more important media companies in the history of American media, you know, and so I had to be prepared for that. I asked myself if I was ready for that. I had to meet and and get to know people I'd never met before, some of whom were extremely famous. Um, and I met living in a different place. Now, that's just the ironic part, because when I was at Wesleyan, like, I had a car, but I didn't really drive around much. Like, oh, drive to New York or Boston, but I didn't really drive to Hartford. But we ended up buying a house in West Hartford, and one day, shortly after we got here, my wife was out of town, and my son was, like, nine months old. He liked to sleep in the car. And I was like, you know what? Let me just put him in the car and just drive around, see if I can find Wesleyan's campus. And we got there in 18 minutes. I'm like, right. what? So, like, so basically I did sort of come back. But uh, at the time I thought I was moving to an area of the country where I'd never lived before. And, you know, I'd lived in central Pennsylvania when I was at Penn State, and I'd lived, you know, in Louisville, Kentucky, and grew up in D.C., and, you know, I was looking for a different experience. Um, and, uh, you know, so my wife and I looked at each other and said, you know, this, this, this could be really good for us. And, and ultimately, this would be a great thing to be able to tell Eli someday, that you can make big decisions and expect something good to happen. So, uh, you know, so those were all the things that were factored into coming up here. And I didn't even dream of the opportunities that were waiting here. You know, I... I from day one, it was fun. From day one, people here were welcoming. From day one, it was cool. I mean, you know, ESPN and SportsCenter are cool. That's you know, getting around that. But I just didn't. I didn't. I underestimated how fantastic it is to be part of the Walt Disney Company and how cool it is to have, you know, a phone call away people who are working at ABC News or Pixar or Marvel or, uh, you know, being able to walk next door to the guy who oversees college game day and laugh about something we had on air or, you know, stand courtside and get in a conversation not only with one of our analysts, but, you know, a former player and just talk about the NBA and, you know, in, in real terms, I just, I completely underestimated what that was going to be like. And it changed 
changed my life. So again, it was just a matter of being open to a new experience and the rewards have just been unbelievable. You once made the great analogy that trying to embrace the various social media platforms that exist today is like trying to hug 50 gallons of jello. <laughs> and looking at the scope of what you're doing at ESPN now, it sounds to me like your whole job is like trying to hug 50 gallons of jello. How would you how would you describe your primary role at this point in in terms of what do you, what are the main things you're focusing on on a day-to-day basis? Sports Center is a is a TV show, true, but it's also a profound promise from ESPN to sports fans. The very first show that ESPN did almost 38 years ago featured an anchor named George Grant explained to people what Sports Center was, and Sports Center was going to be at every game you wanted us to be at, find every report that you wanted to learn about, talk to any person that you wanted to hear from. It's a profound promise, and. You know, on this campus, what we talk about all the time is uh, our mission. Our mission statement is simple, to serve sports fans anytime, anywhere. We talk about that at all times. We have it posted on walls. We have it on cards we walk around with. Um, We live this promise every day. So when you're working off of that basis, uh, yeah, you you could view the complexity of serving, you know, no longer a mass audience. It's a massive audience of individuals um, who are all uh, who all have access to tons of information in real time or uh, you know on demand, and have appropriately very high expectations of any media they spend time with. Um, so it's you know this is it's not a um, it's not a burden, and in fact it's actually a a constantly rewarding privilege to be in the business of watching and listening and trying to serve sports fans. And as that mission gets more complex, it's also a huge opportunity and a huge reward to, you know, identify, hire, promote, challenge people who are uniquely qualified to help us understand what it takes to live up to our mission. Um, You know, you walk around this campus, you just see brilliant people everywhere who are truly driven by this. Um, you walk into our studio on a, you know, doing an average sports center and you just you get a sense of purpose. That's the cool thing about working here is there is a shared sense of purpose. So, um, and you know, it, uh, when I thought in 2004 oh, this would be a chance to learn, um, I was right. I mean, every day we learn something. Every day we learn something new. You know, the fascinating thing about spending time in, in the digital and social space, because I was, I left TV while I was here for about six years to work specifically as editor-in-chief of ESPN.com and then to oversee both ESPN.com and the magazine before I came back to SportsCenter. Um, you know, I went from a world of newspapers where you got your ratings essentially twice a year, which is where you got your circulation numbers, to TV where you get ratings every 15 minutes, to digital where the data, you know, happens in real time, to the present day where that real-time data actually are the ratings for all forms of media, whether you want to pay attention to them or not, you know, because our fans are reacting in real time to things that they are learning about, they care about, they understand, they dislike. Uh, and our business is to work to understand and satisfy those folks. And we really, we really enjoy it. I mean, look, you know, people here have hard jobs, but they are so much fun. 
and that's 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 something we think about every day. Rob, I like to tell students that when it comes to people's careers, the universe tends to work out the way that it should, and it certainly sounds like that was the case for you. Uh, Rob King, class of 1984, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Careers by Design, The Interviews. Production by Sharon Belden Castingway. Music by Andrew Santanello. Interested in designing your own career? Check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Wesleyan University website.